who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Realm presents Book Burners, Episode 9. Prologue. Two weeks and one gluttony demon ago. Father Manchu had passed the point in his life when long nights did not inevitably lead to longer mornings. He had been awakened by a call from Sal and Liam, which had led to the dead body of Katie, ship steward of the Fairweather, who had been executed by Team One without so much as a consultation with Team Three. That revelation had led to a lengthy and dissatisfying confrontation with Monsignor Anjuli followed by an even lengthier conference between Manchu and Asante as the two of them tried to determine, not for the first time, if taking their displeasure directly to the cardinal was a moral necessity or if it would only result in Team 3 and its operations being subjected to increased scrutiny and oversight. As it so frequently did, pragmatism had won out over principle. The familiar creak of old leather and loosening wooden pegs in Manchu's office chair echoed in his own joints. Not for the first time, he wondered if this sort of deep politicking was really what God had intended when he called Manchu to his vocation. Or, whispered the tiny voice of doubt, did you join the church merely as a way to embrace your politics? Manchu had never shied away from politics. He had entered the priesthood with seemingly boundless energy for his calling, shunning sleep for days at a time, going from mass to the homes of his parishioners to late-night meetings with like-minded individuals, inside the clergy and out of it, committed to creating a government and a country worthy of the Guatemalan people. Of course, even in those days, he had eventually succumbed to exhaustion, once memorably as he had knelt before the altar celebrating Mass. Decades later, sitting in his corner of the archives, waiting for his tea to cool enough to allow him a satisfying slug of much-needed caffeine, Manchu thought of the unavenged body of a young Australian woman and wondered if her fate 
had been a result of letting his ideals interfere with his calling or of failing to pursue his ideals energetically enough. Fortunately, after a few days, even bad nights receded into memory, edges softened by the sands of time. Until Sal came to revive the events of the fair weather with a knock at Manchu's office doorway. Do you have a minute? She asked. Even if Manchu had been inclined to send her away, Sal's expression told him that whatever was on her mind couldn't wait. Come in, he said. Not that there was strictly an inn involved. Manchu's office was merely a niche among the shelves of the archives, its doorway, an accident of the main room's idiosyncratic layout. Still, it gave the illusion of privacy, which was usually enough. Manchu waited as Sal sat down on one of the large piles of reference books that served for most of his furniture. He let her take her time, years of experience telling him that he didn't need to push. She had come this far because she wanted to talk. Eventually, she would. There's something I didn't tell you about the fair weather. Menchu waited. There was a tour guide. Well, I thought he was a tour guide, but that was before. Menchu put up a hand. Take a breath. Sal did. A little shaky at first, but it firmed up on the exhale. Whatever it is, it's all right. Just begin at the beginning. Sal took another breath, and then she told him. The pit of Manchu's stomach pooled with dread as Sal came to the end of her story. I know it's crazy, Sal said, but I think Aaron might be an angel. Yes, he'd been afraid that was where this confession was heading. Manchu leaned forward and took Sal's hand. I assure you, whatever you encountered, it was not an angel. Sal shook her head. Maybe not an angel, angel. But in the same way that we call the evil things that come out of the books demons? Isn't it possible that some of these supernatural creatures are trying to help? No. Sal jumped as Menchu's empty mug hit the scarred surface of his desk with a near-shattering crack. He noticed her flinch and made an effort to rein in his tone. If the man you met was truly a divine messenger, carrying the will of God to his people on Earth, why would he give you only vague hints and whispers? I don't know. Demons that wear evil on their faces like the hand are easy to identify and combat. In New York, was there ever any doubt in your mind that your brother had been taken by a sinister force? Sal shook her head. No. The clever demons are more subtle. They force you to fight yourself, your own doubts, before you can fight them. That is why you must always be on your guard. Slowly, Sal nodded. Have you ever seen an angel? Never, nor do I expect to until after I have departed this world for the next. When Sal left, Manchu noticed that his hands were shaking. It took some effort to still them. Two weeks and a trip to Scotland later. Asante snagged Manchu as he passed her desk by holding up a thick cream-colored envelope addressed in perfect copper plate handwriting. Manchu recognized the signs of its sender and didn't bother to hide his distaste. I guess it's that time again. Are you going to take Liam? He asked. Asante shook her head. No. You're taking Sal. Manchu froze. In light of recent events, I don't think that's a good idea. From what you've told me about recent events, she's already in up to her neck. Better that she knows what she's swimming in. Besides, don't you wish you'd gone into this with your eyes wide open? Manchu sighed. Asante, of course, was right. It was time for Sal to learn about the market. One. Now.
Sal had come to the gym to lift weights, put in some treadmill time, and take out a little pent-up aggression on the heavy bag. All of those plans, however, flew out the window when she found Liam with his shirt off, taping his hands and showing off both his physique and tattoos to very good advantage. Not that she wasn't intimately acquainted with all of his ink already. Still, just because a girl was familiar with the scenery didn't mean that she couldn't appreciate the view. He caught her looking and smirked. You come to work out or just window shopping? I can't do both. I'd hate for you to get hurt because you were distracted. Well, she couldn't just let that pass, could she? Despite being in a genuine, roped-off ring, their sparring was more mixed unarmed combat than straight-out boxing. Liam was scandalized to learn that New York police did not generally engage in recreational fisticuffs, at least not since handlebar mustaches had gone out of fashion. But they both had enough training to make for an interesting bout, and if one or the other of them periodically wound up flat on their backs against the canvas, Sal wasn't complaining. From the press of his body against hers, Liam didn't object either. Liam was helping her to her feet, and Sal was just about to suggest that they hit the showers and then continue their conversation in a less public setting, when she was cut off by Father Manchu clearing his throat behind them. Caught engaging in sparring as foreplay by a priest. There was an effective mood killer for you. Sal covered her blush by scrubbing her face with a towel. Father, said Liam, his form of address betraying the depth of his discomfort. There was one advantage to being a lapsed Presbyterian who just happened to work at the Vatican. Sal might not be familiar with Catholic politics and hierarchy, but at least she didn't have to fight years of childhood conditioning every time her boss walked in. Most of the time, Liam did pretty well at ignoring the fact that Manchu was a priest. This apparently was the line. Manchu nodded to Liam in acknowledgement, then turned to Sal. I need you to go home and pack a bag. We've gotten assignments. Our train leaves in two hours. Sal snapped into ready mode, tossing aside her embarrassment along with her used towel. I've got to go back here. We can leave now. Manchu raised an eyebrow. We could, but the train still leaves in two hours, and you need something you can wear in uh, upscale company for the next three days. Sal wasn't sure she had anything in Rome that she could wear in upscale company. Depending on how upscale he meant, she wasn't sure she owned anything appropriate at all. What's the assignment? I can't say. That apparently caused something to click for Liam. Is a Beltane already? Manchu gave him a quelling glance. What's going on? Sal demanded. Manchu shook his head. Can't say. Can't, won't, or aren't allowed to. Doesn't matter. Well, when he put it that way, Sal didn't suppose it did. The train took them to Zurich. Once there, Manchu rented an economy car, and they drove north through the mountains. Through it all, he wouldn't say a word about where they were going, what they would be doing there, or why they were the only members of the team involved. Although Sal had come to accept that answering questions was not the society's forte, it was troubling that Manchu didn't want to talk about anything else either. Finally, after hours of silence and crossing the border into Liechtenstein, of all places, Sal asked, are you mad at me? Manchu glanced at her in surprise. No, why would I be mad at you? I don't know, but I'm starting to feel like the cats you're planning to abandon three states away, hoping that I won't be able to find my way home. Manchu looked pained. I'm sorry, Sal, I've uh, been a bit distracted. No shit. He glanced at a passing kilometer marker and came to a decision. All right, we're close enough now. Let me tell you about uh, the black market. Somehow, Sal had a feeling he wasn't talking about tax-free booze and cigarettes. 
It's probably known as the Market Arcanum, or more commonly, uh, the Market. The society was first invited in the 15th century thanks to the connections of certain members of the Order of the Dragon. What we can tell, however, the Market dates back at least another half millennium before that. In any event, every year at Beltane, covert practitioners of magic gather for a three-night conclave. It's uh, part auction, part high-level diplomatic conference for every power player who uses magic to rig the game. Wait, said Sal. There's an annual clearinghouse where people buy, sell, and trade the objects that we're supposed to be hunting down and destroying? Yes. And Team One hasn't nuked it from orbit. Menchu gave her a sardonic look. I'm sure you've noticed that individuals within our organization do not always agree on matters of policy. She thought of Katie. Yeah, but this time you've managed to stop Team Trigger Happy. How? The society leaves the market alone for two reasons. At first, it was pointed out by one of Asante's long-ago predecessors that even if we could destroy the market, it wouldn't eliminate magic from the world. At least this way, we can keep an eye on things. That seems surprisingly sensible, said Sal. What's the second reason? In an open assault against the market, the society isn't sure they'd win. There are going to be people at this thing who could take Team One? It's highly possible that there are people at the market who could take Team One without breaking a sweat. Sal wasn't sure she wanted to contemplate that. Who are these people? World leaders? Guys who go to Davos? The Illuminati? The members are rather eclectic, Menchu said. The backbone is made up of representatives from the old noble European families, though there's been an influx of new money and technologists in the last hundred years, much to the disgust of the old guard. You'll also see practitioners from Africa, Asia, and the New World, but we believe most of them have core gatherings in their own regions. I'm sure the society would love to have invites to those. The society would like to be able to send more than two representatives to this one, but wanting and getting are two very different things. Not that I'm complaining, but why isn't this a Team 2 job? Aren't they the diplomats? Manchu snorted. They are, but objects and texts are our jurisdiction. Also, the members of the Order of the Dragon who secured the original invitation were part of Team 3, and so, by tradition, we're the ones who go. Sal had a sudden suspicion. Are you a member of this Order of the Dragon? Manchu actually rolled his eyes. The Order of the Dragon was founded hundreds of years ago to protect Christendom from encroachment by the Ottoman Turks. That is not a denial, Sal pointed out. Manchu quirked his lips but said nothing. They rode in silence the rest of the way to Baldsers, a town tucked into a valley in the middle of the mountains, which, as far as Sal could tell, was a fair description of most of Liechtenstein. Spring came late to the Alps, but the hills behind the small B&B where Manchu had booked their rooms were definitely greening up, and Sal took a minute, after she had changed out of her travel clothes into the black pants, black button-down shirt, and black jacket that were as formal as she had managed, to appreciate the smell of clear air and growing things. She was getting used to Rome, but even after all her years in New York, Sal wasn't a city girl at heart. The Market Arcanum was to be held in Gutenberg Castle. Compared to the papal palace, it seemed more like a big stone house than a castle, but Sal supposed that if you ran a country, you could call your buildings whatever you wanted. It was outside of the town proper, and she and Manchu walked together up the hill from therein. 
The market is run by a woman known as the maîtresse, Manchu explained. She sets the rules, and for the next three nights, her word is law. What are the rules? The market is considered neutral territory, which means that no member is allowed to offer violence against another. What constitutes violence? asked Sal. Harsh words, assaults, murder? During the market, violence is whatever the maîtress and her guardians say it is. Ah, gotcha. Any bargain struck at one market must be filled before the beginning of the next. If not, the old party can demand a forfeit of their choosing. Sal could only imagine what powerful magic-wielding people could come up with for a forfeit. Lastly, anyone violating the secrecy of the market will be permanently banned along with their cadre. The penny dropped. That's why you couldn't give me any information earlier? Yes. Sal considered. So if I piss someone off badly enough, I could get the entire Catholic church banned? In theory, yes. I'm not gonna lie. That's just a little tempting. Sal wasn't sure, but she could have sworn she heard Menchu mutter, you have no idea. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, and is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. Plus, it's less expensive than takeout, which honestly was my go-to when I just couldn't or didn't have time to cook a proper meal. So whether you're hoping to cut down on spending, being more intentional with your meals, or just want to save time, Factor can help you get after your goals. Besides their meals, which I have to say, everyone has been delicious, they also have more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled and feeling good all day, like breakfast and midday bites. They've even got fresh pressed juices and protein shakes, and I've really enjoyed their variety pack of wellness shots. I love anything with ginger and cayenne. Factor is also flexible with their plans, so you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Head to factormeals.com slash burners50 and use code burners50 to get 50% off. That's code burners50 at factormeals.com slash burners50 to get 50% off. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Two. The maîtresse waited at the gates, flanked by two immense statues of armored men carrying stone swords. If the maîtresse had been anyone else, Sal would have pegged her age as somewhere between her 40s and her 60s, an indeterminate maturity where experience, strength, and sex appeal came together, and women with the standing to back it up could wear their power without even a whisper of apology. Something about her bearing, however, made Sal suspect that this woman had not apologized for her authority for a very, very long time. Maitress, said Menchie with the barest nod of respect. Thank you for inviting us to the market once again. The woman did not return the courtesy. Blackburner, her eyes flicked to Sal. And this is? Menchie blinked, but took the hint. Our newest member, Sally Brooks. The maîtress swept Sal with a penetrating stare. Is she now? How lovely for you. Sal took Menchu's lead and nodded. Ma'am? The maîtress's gaze lingered for another moment, and then, to Sal's relief, transferred back to Menchu. Do you claim a debt outstanding from the last market? We do not. Very well. At her gesture, the two statues stepped forward and away from the doors. Apparently, the maîtress had figured out how to use magic without being consumed by madness, supernatural backlash, or a demon she sought to control. Which was not a reassuring thought, actually. The artificial men reached out and opened the huge wooden doors leading into the courtyard of the castle proper. The maîtress's smile was anything but welcoming. Welcome to the Market Arcanum. The courtyard was lit by sconces along the walls and illuminated orbs that floated overhead, unconnected to any visible tethers or power sources. Among the crowd already gathered, Sal could pick out at least half a dozen different languages being spoken, and guessed there were probably that many more that she couldn't distinguish from the general murmuring. Does the market supply translators? Sal whispered. Manchu grimaced. This is just opening night posturing, everyone keeping to their own group and proving how esoteric and mysterious they are. Once the market officially opens, everyone switches over to a lingua franca. Please tell me that's pretentious speak for English. These days, yes, it used to be Latin and French, and some of the old families, who insist on doing business traditionally, will use those for official documents and transactions, but English is the world's second language, even here. Oh, good. Putting aside for the moment the part of her brain that kept trying to understand all of the words floating around her, Sal concentrated on what her eyes were telling her instead. Now that Menchu had pointed it out, she could see that all the people in the courtyard kept to small clusters of four or five. Apparently, not every group was limited to the society's two invites. One group of men wearing wolf pelts draped over their shoulders like hoods looked like they had hiked in out of the Alps. The pelts had heads still attached, artificial eyes staring glassily from above their wearers' own faces. It was disconcerting especially when Sal saw one of the wolves blink. On the opposite side of the yard, a group of men and women in jeans and black t-shirts had apparently not gotten Menchu's dress for company memo and were all busily bent over some piece of equipment. Support staff? 
As Sal tried to get a glimpse of just what they were working on, one of the men looked up and met her gaze. Sal felt suddenly cold. Then he looked away, turning back to his work, and she wondered if she had imagined it. Who are they? She asked Manchu. Techno-cultists. Sal wasn't sure she had ever heard him sound so disgusted. They believe that magic, like information, wants to be free, and that by combining human technology with the supernatural, they can bring about the singularity, not just of artificial intelligence, but of all human knowledge. What does that even mean? That they're a bunch of anarchists who have no respect for the power they're playing with. Sal's stomach clenched. Are these the people Perry was mixed up with? Philosophically, maybe but we never had evidence that your brother and his friends were working with anyone except themselves. Before Sal could pursue the subject any further, the loud bang of a wooden bar falling across the entry doors reverberated through the courtyard. The assembly fell silent, and in that pause, the maîtresse stepped out onto a balcony overlooking the market. Tonight begins the market, Arcanum. For three nights, from sunset to sunrise, all debts and grudges are to be set aside within these walls. In the world outside, we are friends, rivals, enemies. Here, we are equals. The maîtress clapped her hands once, and the air throughout the castle vibrated, as though they stood inside a giant bell. On the stone wall above her, a clock face appeared. It had only a single hand creeping from sunset on the far left edge of the circle, toward dawn marked opposite. The courtyard instantly erupted in conversation once again. The market had begun. One of the men with the wolf pelts examined the contents of a lacquered wooden box held by a woman wearing an elegant evening gown, but whose exposed skin was completely covered in tattoos. The techno-cultists went back to their equipment, and a tall man wearing a suit that probably cost more than Sal earned in a year was striding toward her and Manchu. When he arrived, his voice dripped with false cordiality. Excellent. I had hoped that the book burners would deign to make an appearance. Sal wondered if everyone at this gathering hated them, or if they just kept running into the ones who did. We don't burn books, said Manchu gently. Of course not, you take them, even when they don't belong to you. Sal frowned and glanced at Manchu. Did he have any idea who this man was, or what he was talking about? Manchu's expression was impossible to read. There are no debts or grudges within these walls. If you have a problem with the society, I suggest that you take your quarrel elsewhere, mister. The man smiled. The name is Mr. Norse. Mr. Norse, owner of the Fairweather. Sal was mildly impressed that he was more upset about the book than his burned yacht, but maybe he didn't know Team One had been behind that. Maybe his yacht spontaneously caught fire all the time. With hobbies like his, it had to be a risk. Since you took something of mine, Mr. Norse continued, now I am going to take something of yours. He was practically leering. On instinct, Sal placed herself between the two men. You heard the lady on the balcony. This is neutral territory. But if you want to step outside, I'd be happy to kick your ass three nights from now. Mr. Norse only smiled. I've already stepped outside, Ms. Brooks. He laid a particular emphasis on her name, rolling it on his tongue. Sal felt her phone vibrate against her thigh. Incoming call. She ignored it. Congratulations, you know my name. Am I supposed to find that intimidating? You'll want to get that, said Mr. Norse. Behind her, Father Manchu's hand slid toward his own ringing phone. Why? 
It's the part you're supposed to find intimidating. Sal pulled out her phone and glanced at the caller ID. Liam. Liam and Asante stood at the center of a maelstrom. A fierce wind roared through the archives, picking up books and sending them flying off their shelves, hurtling through the air like mad birds. What's going on? Liam shouted. Above them, the towering shelves swayed, metal creaking like an old barn in a storm. Liam wondered just how many tons of paper loomed above their heads and how long it would take to dig out their bodies if it all came tumbling down. And then something was falling toward them. Grace. No, she wasn't falling. She had slipped through the lattice surrounding the central stairs and was skittering down the supports like they were a giant swaying jungle gym. She landed lightly on her feet, not even out of breath. Are you insane? Liam asked. She shrugged. Faster than walking. Did you find them, Monsignor? Asante asked. Grace shook her head. Couldn't get out. We're sealed in. It wasn't really a question, but Grace nodded. Liam reached for his phone. I tried, said Grace. No signal. Liam didn't look up. I've got some boosters built into mine. I might be able to get through whatever's causing this so we can warn the other teams. Asante grabbed Liam's shoulder to get his attention. Try Salamanchu first. Even though she was shouting directly into Liam's ear, he had trouble hearing her over the creak of shelves and the thumps of falling books. Why? Because the market began tonight, and whatever this is, it started at sunset. Once Sal had hung up with Liam, Manchu calmly returned his attention to Mr. Norse. All right, you've shown that you can attack my people. Now stop. The other man smiled. No. I will report you to the guardians. It is against the rules of the market. The rules of the market forbid any member to offer violence against another within these walls. I have not lifted a hand against you or your companion, but you killed three of my people. Return my book, said Mr. Norse, or the attacks will escalate every night until the rest of your team is just as dead as mine. Three. Sal and Manchu left the castle the instant the doors were unbarred at sunrise. Their landlady gave them a look as they arrived for breakfast through the outside door, but Sal was too strung out to care. As soon as they could, they adjourned to Manchu's room and called Asante. The maelstrom stopped briefly at dawn, she reported, but it keeps picking up again, randomly and without warning, which is almost worse. Is everyone okay? Sal asked. A bit battered, but so far, yes. Well, that was something at least. Could Mr. Norse be bluffing? Sal asked. Manchu shook his head. Unfortunately, I think we have to assume that whatever Mr. Norse is doing will escalate to more lethal levels until he makes good on his threat. Then he added to Asante, we should be there with you. As much as I'd appreciate your company and assistance, I think you can do more good working on Mr. Norse where you are. Besides, we're locked in. Manchu said something in Spanish that Sal suspected he wouldn't be willing to translate. She decided to get back to the matter at hand. Okay, if you're stuck in there, what can we do from Liechtenstein to make sure that you don't, you know, die? I mean, besides give Mr. Norse a book leaking demonic goo that wants to drown the world. It depends on what he actually wants, said Asante. He sounded pretty clear about wanting all of you dead, said Sal. If Norse wanted to kill us, there are a lot faster, easier, and more deniable ways to go about it said Asante. Manchu grimaced. Which means that this is just the opening of negotiations. 
Indeed, Mr. Norris responded immediately and favorably to their request for a meeting, which Sal had to admit lent a certain degree of credibility to Asante's theory. They arranged to meet before sunset in a small room that was normally part of the castle's museum. Mr. Norris seated himself on a tapestried stool that must have been at least 400 years old, as though he sat on Renaissance furniture every day. Maybe he did. Manchu and Sal remained standing. Thank you for agreeing to meet with us, Manchu began. Do you have my book? We do, locked in our archives. Then I suggest you unlock it, Mr. Norris remarked dryly. If transport is a problem, I have an envoy in Rome who will accept delivery on my behalf. He took a card out of his jacket pocket and held it out to Manchu. Manchu ignored it. The book is both damaged and highly dangerous. We cannot hand it over. Mr. Norris raised a brow. I thought Catholics believed in the value of human life. We are aware that you purchased the volume and are prepared to compensate you for your loss of property. My demands for compensation are very simple. I want my book. Since I suspect you will not provide it, I will kill your team. And then I want you to live with the knowledge of the deaths you caused with your obstinacy. His smile was flat and cold. Unless you can offer me something better than that, I think our discussions are concluded. So much for negotiations, Sal thought. Time, asked Liam. One minute to sunset, came Grace's calm reply, as though they weren't anticipating all unholy hell breaking loose in the next 60 seconds. Liam had faith in Menchu and his powers of persuasion. He believed that God would protect those committed to his work on Earth. Liam had also been taught that the Lord helped those who helped themselves, and so that was what he and the rest of the team had spent the day doing. Now, Liam's entire body felt like one huge bruise, and his ears rang from stress, hunger, and lack of sleep. But this time, they would be prepared. Are you ready? Asante asked. Give me five seconds. Thirty seconds to sunset, said Grace. Liam took hold of two heavy iron maces, originally part of some forgotten order's regalia, now wrapped in wire stripped from every reading lamp in the archive, and lifted his arms to their greatest extension, one on either side of his body. Do it. Grace and Asante both jammed spliced electrical plugs into outlets on opposite walls, one for each mace. It hadn't been easy to create electromagnets with things that were stashed around the archives, but pain and annoyance were both powerful motivators, and Liam had plenty of both to egg him on. Now he just needed this harebrained scheme to work. Grace, a little more on your side. Liam heard a scrape as she pushed a set of iron shelves through the cascade of books covering the floor. He fancied he could see Asante wince out of the corner of his eye, but she didn't say anything. First save themselves, worry about the damage later. The pressure on his arm eased as the magnetized mace wavered, torn between the pull of the magnet in his other hand and the huge hunk of iron Grace was moving toward it. The pull was easing, nearly neutral. There. Grace froze. Liam held his breath. Slowly, carefully, he let go of the maces, trying not to jostle their positions in the air. Then he stepped away. The two weapons hung perfectly balanced between the attractive force of the iron shelves, the central stairway, and each other. Liam let out a long, slow breath. No one moved. Time, four seconds to sunset. Three, two, one. 
The archives remained silent. No winds, no flying books. Grace looked at Liam, impressed. Field is holding. Nice work. Then she frowned. Do you hear that? Hear what? High-pitched sound, like a fluorescent bulb that's slightly off-cycle. Liam shook his head. No, but my high frequencies aren't great. Too much time with your headphones on, said Asante. Liam shrugged, probably. Then a sound tickled at the edge of his hearing. Wait, is it kinda? The high-pitched noise exploded in his head like someone was driving an ice pick through his eardrums. Liam gasped in pain. He heard Asante shout, and Grace... Grace, who could take a fist to the face without blinking, who Liam had seen headbutt armored demons twice her size and not even bruise, crumpled to the floor, unconscious. From the instant Menchu and Sal stepped into the courtyard at sunset, it was obvious that everyone at the market knew what was going on. Not that Mr. Norris had been at all subtle with his threats the night before, but Manchu couldn't help but notice how every whispered conversation paused as they passed and then resumed as soon as they were out of earshot. He wished that Asante were there with them. Actually, he wished that Asante were there instead of him. Manchu had learned over the years to take people as they came. His easy manner with all sorts was one of the reasons he had been recruited into Team 3. But the market, with its casual magic use and even more casual classism, made his teeth crawl. He did his best to shake off his annoyance. It wouldn't help, and railing against the good fortune of people who did evil over those who did good was Bush League theology of the First Order. As if she could read his mind, Sal let out a sigh. That's not fair. What isn't? We probably have the largest collection of magical books and artifacts in the world in the archives. She gestured to the crowd around them. We could be sitting on something that could not only stop Mr. Norris, but also make his balls fall off the next time he even thinks about going after our people. But it doesn't do us any good because we never use any of the artifacts we find. Quickly, Manchu drew Sal off to the side where they could speak without being disturbed. That kind of thinking had to be nipped in the bud. We are fighting this, Sal, he assured her, and we are going to win. Liam, Grace, and Asante are going to be fine. You don't know that. We can't give Mr. Norse the book because he would use it to destroy the world. I get that. But look around us. This place is full of people who use magic every day. It doesn't seem to be driving them insane. You don't know them very well yet. Sal shook her head. I just don't understand why you won't even consider. Because I know what happens when people try to use forces they don't understand. Sal was clearly still in the mood to argue, and Manchu realized they would be at it all night if he didn't give her something productive to do. Why don't you call and check in with the others? Let them know what's going on and make sure they're still all right. And what are you going to do? Manchu couldn't stop the grimace. Look for allies. Sal's conversation with Liam had not gone well. A burst of static exploded from the phone the instant he picked up. She tried to tell him what had happened with Mr. Norris, but wasn't sure that he could hear anything over the bad connection. From what she'd been able to tell over the interference, the situation in the archives had only gotten worse. And there was still jack all she could do about it from goddamn Liechtenstein. When Sal hung up, the techno-cultist who had been staring at her the night before was standing at her elbow. She jerked in surprise, and her phone went flying from her fingers. The techno-cultist's hand darted out, picked her falling phone out of the air, and handed it to her, all without ever once breaking eye contact. He worked his mouth for a moment as though he had to remember how to talk. 
Finally, he said, you're Perry's sister, aren't you? Sal felt her heart lurch in her chest. She checked the courtyard. Manchu was nowhere to be seen. Yes, uh, who are you? You can call me Opus 93. How about I call you by your real name? He shrugged. What makes Opus 93 less real than the name I was born with? Because Opus 93 is a stupid ass name, Sal didn't say. What do your friends call you? Opus 93. Sigh. What do you know about my brother, Opie? Word is he got his hands on something real, but he brought it to his sister, the cop. He goes Nova, puts out a huge spew of phantom data, then goes dark. And now cop's sister is a book burner, and no one's heard from Perry since. What are you implying? Implications are imprecise. Facts are what's needed. Sal didn't know whether to roll her eyes or fight back tears. It was too much like talking to Perry when he got into one of his esoteric fugues. Fine. Are you offering facts or just fishing for them? Information wants to be free, doesn't come without a price. You want help with your little billionaire problem, you need to ask the index. The index? Even Sal could hear the capital letter. She looked around again for Manchu. Still no sign of him. She swallowed. Tell me more. Either the small room the techno-cultists had reserved for their use during the market was not normally part of the castle's museum, or it had been lovingly restored to its original purpose of storing dirt. Though Darren wouldn't have required the window the cultists were using to vent the portable generator they had brought, that was the only familiar piece of equipment in the room. Through a shared childhood with Perry, Sal had become passably familiar with circuit boards, resistors, and the various shells that computers and their innards came in. Not that she could do anything with them, but at least she knew what they were supposed to look like. These computers, and Sal used the term loosely, had probably started their lives as standard PCs. What had happened to them next? One laptop looked like it had been repurposed as a planter, the keyboard replaced with a bed of moss ringed by yellow flowers. Above, a screen glowed with life. As Sal watched, Opie brushed a hand over the moss, and the blinking cursor and command line vanished, replaced by scrolling code that flew by faster than her eyes could follow. Another half-open desktop was filled with boards where glowing crystals grew among the circuits, absorbing the machine into their structure. A screen on the opposite wall connected to a large aquarium, complete with a herd of tiny seahorses milling in the purple-hued water. Opie caught her staring. Biocomputer. Only working example in the world. They walked over to the aquarium and pulled a keyboard off a nearby shelf. A few keystrokes later, the blank screen above the tank changed to display a video of a baby panda. Panda cam in the Beijing Zoo. It's closed circuit, not publicly accessible. Sal was more disturbed by the seahorses. As soon as Opie picked up the keyboard, they fell into formation, then scattered. They were currently swimming in a very intricate pattern through the tank. Except that every few seconds, all of the seahorses would suddenly freeze in place like a buffering video. The baby panda, meanwhile, rolled on its back happily, and the hand reached in from off screen to rub its belly. I thought biocomputers were still theoretical. Then the rest of the world, yeah. But if you have a little bit of magic to help you, he gestured to the rest of the room. All things are possible. Is that the index? The index makes this look like a Commodore 64. So why are you wasting my time? I have friends in trouble. Can you help me or not? Opie gave her a smug look. I can help you. 
But the index contains the sum of all human knowledge. Like I said, you don't get to access that for free. Sal scoffed and held up her cell phone. I already have access to the sum of all human knowledge. Cost me $65 a month. Opie snorted. We both know that if that was enough, you wouldn't have followed me, cop sister. The internet is merely the totality of human knowledge that's been written down and put online. The index is a repository of everything known by any human who has ever interfaced with it. And that includes Mr. Norse? Opie nodded. Ask your question and know what he knows about what's happening to your friends. What's the catch? Asked Sal, torn between being fascinated by the possibilities and really disturbed by the implications of what Opie was saying. For every question you ask, the index takes one piece of knowledge from your mind and you can never know it again. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. You've probably heard the name Mary, Queen of Scots, and maybe you know the importance of her legacy to the British monarchy. But how much do you know about her life and what she was really like? For instance, did you know that she preferred to have her eggs scrambled or that giving gifts was her love language? In my podcast, Vulgar History, we'll be talking about all that and more during an eight-part miniseries about the fascinating life of Mary, Queen of Scots. Vulgar History is a feminist women's history comedy podcast where we don't shy away from the messy, complicated lives of women from the olden times. Particularly with women in history, it's easier to use broad strokes to portray who they were, and it's like we forget they probably also had messy lives, complicated relationships, and maybe things weren't as black and white as they might seem in a textbook. But... I'm dedicated to sharing the sides of the stories we don't always hear, and each episode is supported by rigorous historical research. Turns out there's really something about Mary Queen of Scots. So be sure to turn into my series about Mary Queen of Scots and check out the other incredible women I've talked about while you're there. You can listen and subscribe to Vulgar History wherever you get your podcasts and learn more at vulgarhistory.com. Bookburners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith and additional editing by Corey Barton and Brooks Ewald. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Osadolahi. Find more shows like Bookburners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>